I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with the very distinguished poet, Mena Elvin, who is also, of course, a um, Western male columnist. Mena, tell me a little bit about your background. Where are you from originally? Well, I'm from Pontadawa in the Swansea Valley, uh, otherwise known as Sunshine City, according to the bus conductor, because uh, it's always rained there. Uh, but it was a very happy uh, childhood. And, uh, but we moved when I was 12 to the outskirts of Carmarthen, Peniel, and that's really where I lived until I went to college. How old were you when you started writing? I started writing when I was about 15. I was struck by um, the injustice happening in Vietnam. I think the Vietnam drove me into writing. That happened at the same time as Trewerin was happening, you know, a village being drowned, people removed from, the, from their homes. That alongside the great uh, the war, the, tele- the first televised war, really, that was happening in, in Vietnam and it really pained me in, enormously and I, I wrote uh, songs. I, I was in a band, we did a record even, and, and I wrote poems about uh, Vietnam and seeing children fleeing, villages being lit up and uh, burnt to the ground made me realise that there was so much injustice in the world that I wanted to be a writer. But, of course, it was very political uh, or song, protest songs. It wasn't poetry as such. So what was it, do you think, that took you into writing poetry as such? Because um, it's not usually the vehicle for protest. I got excited about the writers I was reading. I think poetry saved me from myself, uh, in a way. And as soon as I read Yeats, Robert Frost, um, Edwin Muir, he has a wonderful poem that says, Difficult land, this is a difficult land. Here things miscarry whether we care or do not care enough. And he goes on about what's happening in Scotland. And he ends with, this is a difficult land and our home. And it seemed to speak to me. It seemed to me that it was a medium that I could believe in and live through and create a sense of order in my own life through words. And Dylan Thomas, everybody has to fall in love with Dylan Thomas when they're young. And then you read Aris Thomas and you realise, oh, this is you know, the master of being concise. And, uh, and, and, and then Edward Thomas, who, who, so the three Thomases were very much poets that I admired, as well as, later on, women poets, American mostly. What form of poetry do you get drawn towards, would you say? Well, this is interesting, what form of poetry, because in Welsh you're kind of expected to go down through this kind of labyrinth. You're expected to join the bardic tradition. My father was a hymnist. He wrote poetry in Canghanedd and one of the Eisteddfod and so forth. And I could have gone down that, but that didn't in any way interest me. I wanted to be 
a writer that could connect in a conversational way, in the way that Robert Frost wrote, in the way that other writers were beginning to experiment with free, uh, free meter and, and uh, verlieb. So that was my language. I, of course, studied Ken Haneth and could write a decent Anglin, perhaps, if you forced me. But it was never a form that I wanted to excel in. And so the Eisteddfod wasn't something that I aspired to either. Competition was something that, to someone who was very shy growing up, wasn't something that I... I longed for, I wanted to be taken as a serious poet and the only way to be a serious poet, especially as a woman in writing in Welsh, was to bring out poetry in, in a book form and so I wrote you know, four or five books of poetry before, before I was in my early 30s. And in terms of making a career, nobody gets rich from writing poetry. Not many people get no, rich from no. writing poetry. So how did you see what were you doing in the context of the world of work? I was lucky in the sense that I, I, I knew being a writer meant being totally committed to that. And I was, in a way, lucky in the sense that I, I became a mother and I took on part-time work as a lecturer at uh, Lampeter University, which allowed me days when I, I could write. And later on, I took the big leap in the 1990s uh, when I was travelling back and forth being a lecturer in education at Swans University. I took the leap of becoming a full-time writer. And it was 1990, and it was, it was that crunch time. Am I a writer or am I a teacher? <coughs> and I decided I'm going to be a writer. And so in the 90s, I did a lot of plays, um, I did a lot of libretti, I spent a year in New York uh, working for the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, writing a, a choral symphony for the millennium, and with, with an American composer, I did a lot of libretti, which really appealed to me because it brought in my musical side as a harpist and as a, uh, as a pianist and a writing songs. And so I managed to make a living um, somehow from being um, freelance. There's a sense, perhaps, where, as in France, where the public intellectual or the writer is widely respected, that isn't the case in England. Mm -hmm. It isn't the case in the United States. But within the Welsh language community, there is something of that going on, isn't there? So that people may be part of a small audience, but you're able to have that exchange of ideas, if you like, with a group of people who are receptive. Is that important to you? It is important that that literature is respected in Wales, and I think that goes back to the time when the literacy in, in, in Welsh life became, was early on with the Bible being translated and, and so forth. And so there's a great deal of respect for books. And if you go to people's houses, even people who don't read a lot, they will have some books there, whether they're religious or the classics, because they do, do feel enamoured by books and want to be around books. I 
love the fact that there is a, a, a magazine called Bardas, which has over a thousand uh, readers and, and people who uh, subscribe to that magazine, and it's great. I found it difficult early on because I was a woman writing in the Welsh language, and that was something that wasn't really as acceptable as if I, I would be a, a male writer. And even in academy circles, I remember I was made a fellow. I was one of five women on the academy, that very small band early on before it became uh, Literature Wales. And people would ask, but why don't you write prose? Women are good at writing prose, fiction. And there was something about the mystery of a woman wanting to what was seen as being high art, uh, especially with the intricacy of Kanghaneth, you know, why would you want to write poetry as a woman? But there were so many things I wanted to say as a woman writing in Welsh. But that sense doesn't necessarily cross over into English language writing. Would you say that English language writers maybe do not have that sense of community, that sense of an audience which the Welsh language writers do? I think the Welsh language writers are very are very committed to their writing and to other writers. But it can also be quite claustrophobic in the sense that there are so many writers writing in Welsh now who, who write in a similar vein. And when I was writing, a beginning as a poet... I was writing about things that hadn't been written about ever before in the Welsh language, such as miscarriage. Nobody had written in Welsh about a woman losing a child and writing 20 poems about that subject. And a lot of readers, male readers at that time, we're going back now to the 70s, a lot of people at that time thought they, that they were unseemly, that they, they, they weren't... Um, Poetic, they were vulgar even. And of course, it meant that I suddenly realised as soon as I brought out my second book of poetry, Stavetloid Aros, Waiting Rooms, which was all was about miscarriage and won a big prize, I realised that people were saying, Oh, here is a feminist poet poet writing in Welsh. And I wasn't quite sure I knew what feminism meant then. And then I started reading and then I read. Adrian Rich and the others and Susan Griffin and and I realised, yes, I I belong to that kind of poetry, but of course poetry is so much more than just gender and it's it's uh, it's it's wider than that. There are times when I you know, I feel very annoyed at at at, at women or feminism and write about that, such as I have a poem about falsies, about, uh, you know, people having uh, their breasts um, done, whatever. So, uh, but there was that stigma at that time by a certain kind of poet who thought poetry shouldn't be about these things, it should be about rivers and flowers and whales, especially whales, yeah. Going along with um, the writing that you were doing, you were also becoming something of an activist, weren't you, as a young woman, in terms of Welsh language yeah. and peace. 
Tell us about that. I suppose writing and being an activist kind of came sort of parallel in a way. And yet I didn't write much about Wales, but I, I believed in acting for Wales. I, as a member of Cymdeitha Suri, I took part in, in demonstrations and ended up in prison twice at very short periods. And um, I wrote a few poems about those experiences. Um, and as well as caring for the language or believing in the right of bilingualism and equal status for the language. I believed in equal status for women. For um, I was also a member of a, a group. We worked uh, anti-apartheid demonstrations. I would go on anti-Vietnam marches, shouting, you know, Kissinger, how many kids have you killed today? That kind of uh, thing. So activism <coughs> as part of something I had to do as a as a kind of citizen, as a good citizen, rather than as a writer. The writing was perhaps something that came. The more and more I um, developed as a writer, I realised I needed the solitude and I needed the space to write uh, rather than uh, spend time perhaps on marches. And of course, you've taken it in another direction as well with your involvement in the organisation PEN, which yeah, is... Yeah really representing and showing solidarity with writers who are yeah. operating under very difficult circumstances yes, in different parts yeah, of the world. Yeah. Tell us about your work in that field. Well, in the 80s, we, we tried to set up a pen organisation and uh, there was always a stumbling block um, in the sense that uh, there was an English pen who said, yes, yes, join us. And we always felt, well, but we want a Welsh pen. And then, of course, after devolution, Scottish pens set up quickly. They are Scottish pen. Northern Ireland even had a Northern Ireland pen. And Wales didn't. So in 2014, we decided, right, it is time. We have to set up a Welsh pen. And so some of us got together. Uh, we needed a lot of members to be able to apply to be part of the worldwide organisation pen with 147 groups around the world operating. And so we, we set it up in, in Hay during one of the Hay festivals um, in, in midwinter. And so I'm very proud of that because I feel as a Welsh writer it's so important to be part of a worldwide campaign against those who try to uh, suppress freedom of expression. And this was brought to home to me when I went to the first, uh, my first, anyway, Congress pen um, in Quebec. Seeing people there from places like Somalia saying uh, we might be arrested when we get home because we were warned not to come to this Congress and to pass this res resolution. And there were lots of resolutions there against what was going on in Saudi Arabia, which has you know, come to the fore uh, recently with, with all that's going on there against journalists. So, so I think it is one of the most important organisations as a writer you could belong to. And do you think that the organisation has much impact? As an impact, it's difficult to say what is an impact. I think that the fact that we are there, uh, we last year did a project with the Kurds uh, in Turkey. We are constantly writing to various governments, uh, criticising this and that. And in fact, it was wonderful when I launched my Catalan book of poetry, Mirmiri, uh, last year, 
um, someone from Penn International came down from London and said, we just want you to know in Wales that you have been recognised as helping the Kurds and the Kurdish language and, and all the activities going on there, and that Wales is mentioned in various places in Turkey. That gives me a great satisfaction to know even that our name is there. One of the sad things, though, is, isn't it, Mena, that um, very often the degree of support which writers and taking it further, um, freedom fighters um, like the Kurds in Syria get from the West and from the international community generally is dependent on how useful they are seen at the time to the interests of the West and to the international community. Because five years ago, um, the Kurds were heroes in Kobane, where they were defeating ISIS. Now... Um, they are getting attacked by the Turkish government as if they were terrorists. So very often the ideals that you and others would espouse are not respected by the governments which have actually got it within their power to do something to effect improvements. Does that cause you difficulty or trouble? No, because I think it's still so important that we are still there. I mean, we have despots uh, in the world now. You're looking at India and the Philippines, where I, I, I read some years ago, and other places such as Turkey, especially. And and but it's true to say that despots fear writers, but they fear readers more, and and that's the thing. It's what poets and writers and journalists represent that it is in opposition to what they do and perhaps curtails what they, they do. We, we tend to think of, of the horrors that they <laughs> manage to achieve, but we forget sometimes what they would do if journalists weren't there, if journalists weren't as a vanguard to all that. When you have a situation where a writer, a journalist, can be summoned to a consulate, mm-hmm. as uh, Mr. Khashoggi was mm-hmm. in Istanbul, mm-hmm. goes into the consulate of the country uh, where he was born mm-hmm. and ends up getting brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. Is it still true to say that the pen is mightier than the sword? I think we have to believe that, because otherwise, what is the alternative and I think writing, I always used to tell my students, and they used to argue this sometimes, I always used to say you have to believe in the everlasting yes. You have to be an optimist to be a writer. Because to be a pessimist, you will get nowhere. You would just defeat yourself, and you will just uh, go into deep depression. A writer has to believe in, well, in hope and in, in changing non-existence of, of, you know, the great powers in in trying to block that, believe in a better world. In I always quote uh, Charles Simic, uh, Simic who said, you know, serenity in the midst of chaos. And that's where you get serenity <coughs> very often is from writers who write... I think one of the Turkish writers, Dundar, who's now in Germany, Khan Dundar, 
said that one of the most amazing things when he was in, in a Turkish prison and he was released and then he, he fled to the West, to, to, to Berlin, was the amount of letters he would get every day and the way that would disarm even the jailers. And when we look around the world now, where there's a great rise in populism, right-wing nationalism, how important is the role of a writer in this context? It, it's all important. I mean, and I, I say that um, on, on many fronts. I say that as a writer. I say sometimes as a feminist, because you look at what's happening in India with women and, and the abuse of women there, um, and the way they are fighting back in, in having one day where they have a, a women's day of going to the together to parks uh, for a siesta, for to, to rest. Um, uh, I say also, as someone who's fought for a long time for children's rights, and I think that's a big, big issue, the way children are treated around the world, uh, whether it's uh, through you know, slave, slavery, or I, I, I wrote a novel on the street children of Mexico and spent some time there taking Dunkin' Donuts as a morning breakfast to some of the children there and um, really getting to know how some children really uh, managed to survive in those conditions. And I think we sometimes underestimate the spirit, the, the resilience of even children to fight against their lot, their fate. You do a lot of travelling. Yes. And you could be described as a kind of cultural representative for Wales, as an ambassador taking Wales, a small country, to the world. Yeah. Is that how you see yourself? And how do people react in countries that you visit and readings that you give in places where perhaps Wales and its culture is, is virtually unheard of. I like to think that I take Wales with me. Uh, I, I, I think the Welsh language is a kind of temple that I live within wherever I go. And I always feel empowered by the fact that I come from this wonderful country, um, but it's a minority uh, language, and I recognise that, but it's it's hopefully going to be more of a majority one day. But coming across other nations, nationalities, other groups, also battling their own kind of minority status or being on the edge. And I think being Welsh means you know what it is to feel on the edge of something, not mainstream, but still have that voice to voice what is difficult and to voice against being powerless and that gives me an enormous pleasure in sharing that with other people. For example in Zimbabwe reading in Welsh and English and people saying I could do this, I could do Shona in English or going to Philippines or oh, I could do Tagalog in English, I could, I could do things that are you know, unconventional and that's why I think that my work does travel is because I I write about things that are um, although I write in the Welsh language my subject matter could be anywhere and it is everywhere and nowhere sometimes very often nowhere but it is that sense of 
of trying to create a world you can live within and share. It's not a view that's as prevalent as it uh, was 20 or 30 years ago, perhaps. But we still see letters in the Western Mail, postings on social media, where you have individuals who live in Wales who are very disparaging towards the Welsh language. What do you think their problem is? I wrestle a lot with this idea of, of what it what is it that enrages people about another language. And and it must be that feeling of of feeling that they are not part of something that perhaps they would like to be and but won't admit to themselves perhaps that they they are missing out on something not that I want to feel in any way inferior because they don't speak the Welsh language not at all I think when Cymdeithas Siriai set out to fight for the Welsh language channel we we fought and perhaps failed at the same time to fight for an English language channel that was Welsh in essence to bridge that gap between Welsh language and English language people um, who really feel Welsh but but feel perhaps uh, don't feel part of being part of what some would say the Welsh crachach you know the, and, and you know Welsh Labour MPs of the 80s have a lot to answer for because they whipped up a kind of um, feeling of of, of the Welsh against the Welsh, you know, that oh, people in North Wales couldn't speak, understand people in South Wales and all this nonsense. And I, I don't want to name anyone, but we know who they are. And they were wrong. And um, they were wrong in the sense that you come across schools in, in the Gavalis overflowing with, with, with children who come from English language uh, homes who learn Welsh um, uh, and and I've taught many on my master's course in creative writing of being, and said oh the, you know the schools in the Rhonda you know you go to Welsh school and um, they don't think anything of it it's this stigma that is beginning to I hope um, go away and uh, another generation again if it's true what is being said now that perhaps Welsh will survive into, you know, into a, well, into a better situation. Then, then perhaps we won't have this discussion anymore. Did you fear at one time that Welsh might be dying? Oh well, when I was in school in in Carmarthen, the irony is I was brought up in the Swansea Valley, where people spoke Welsh or English and didn't care. You know, pretty much some spoke. Uh, in Welsh and ended a conversation in English. There was no stigma in Pontadawa in the 50s. Then I went to a grammar school in, in Carmarthen and people were saying, you're speaking a dying language. And I'd go home and my parents weren't dying, my aunts weren't dying and my cousins. So there was that feeling that Welsh didn't have a, much of a future, which is why, of course, Cymdeithas Riaith came to the fore. And that's perhaps... The success of Cymdeithas Suriaith is that we managed, and still, <laughs> there's still a lot of activity going with Cymdeithas Suriaith, but we managed to somehow change that kind of um, atmosphere. Um, people didn't fear us because we were non-violent. We um, 
we weren't challenging their way of life. We're just trying to change the order, which was what I was about in the in those sixties of, you know, changing the world, um, pretty much like Martin Luther King, and and I think we managed to win support, quiet support from people, um, because we weren't really disrupting their lives as such. Although I can remember pulling road signs down and somebody shouting from the window, oh, go home, will you? You know, they weren't phoning the police. They were just saying, I want a good night's sleep, you know. They knew we were innocent in the sense they didn't feel threatened, but they felt able to shout and tell us to go home, you know. And I think that's a very civilised way of, you know, that kind of dialogue and of, of opposing views which is has in the last few years been betrayed in with the Brexit um, dialogue. Do you think that's been a debilitating dialogue? Oh it's been a very depressing dialogue. Oh the Brexit situation um, is is one of enormous sadness um, because I, I I travel to so many countries in Europe I've read in, in, in most countries in Europe and, and my, my poetry has been translated and there's another one coming out now in Polish and German one in Italian at the end of the year a Spanish one, Bondo with Trea a big publisher in, in Spain and Lithuania these countries have faced you know, other <coughs> countries through literature and I fear that we are losing that sense of decency and humanity. Wales in the post-Brexit world, what, what chances does Wales have in the post-Brexit world? Oh, it's hard to say. Who knows? It's very difficult to see how Wales is going to thrive under the kind of government we now have. And I fear that we will have a lot of campaigning to do, which I will have to take my part, I suppose. But not at the mercy of writing poetry and I am writing a play now for the National Theatre Wales uh, which um, I hope will get a lot of my angst out on those matters of Welshness and uh, where Wales is heading. Mena Elvin, thank you very much. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Mm-hmm.